It's Monday, November 14th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This is the final week of the United Nations Conference on Climate Change held in Charmel Shake. For a limited time only at participating Cairo McDonald's, the Charmel Shake. These are the signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. This is the one that Donald Trump got out of in Paris. But don't worry, Joe Biden came back to say, we're back in, baby. We immediately rejoined the Paris Agreement. We convened major climate summits and reestablished. I apologize you ever pulled out of the agreement. Well, it's good we're back. Now let's get to decreasing the greenhouse gases everywhere. Let's now check in on the country that's decreasing greenhouse gases the most. USA! USA experienced a 20% decrease since 2005. From 1990 to 2020, United States emissions of carbon dioxide decreased 8%. Methane emissions down 17%. Nitrous oxide emissions decreased by 5%. The guy who lived next to me in college, but for him it would have been 6 In fact, the United States went from the world's number one emitter to a Distant, distant second, China emits double what the United States does now. But that's not the framing you hear, not mostly, and maybe it shouldn't be. When CO2 is released, other greenhouse gases too, but let's look at CO2. It does, some of it dissipates, but a lot of it stays. I hear 20% and it can linger for hundreds of years. So you're probably reading and hearing about how the United States is the number one historic emitter of greenhouse gases or how since 1850, no nation has emitted more than the United States. We admit it. It's true. But Is the blame-first model the best way to provoke change? What were we supposed to have done before anyone on the planet had an inkling of a concept called greenhouse gases? Do current treaties on, say, endangered species seek to punish and sanction countries that killed the most bears, whales, and elephants 150 years ago? Or are the penalties and incentives about the state of the world today? Take the United Kingdom. They are historically a larger producer of greenhouse gases than India. Until 1882, more than half of the world's cumulative emissions came from the UK alone. But now the UK produces total greenhouse gas emissions of 346 million tons. India, 2.7 billion tons. So what's the better way to think about who desperately needs to reduce? Is it the UK because of history or is it India because they're actually emitting a lot now? You can also calculate it per capita or take into account the growth that the UK has experienced versus what India may still yet experience if they're I guess, allowed to grow, which often requires emitting greenhouse gases. Oh, and by the way, when the UK was emitting more than India, which was prior to 1990, they crossed places on the global chart in 1990. We didn't really know much about CO2 emissions. Some, but not like we do now. So the answer that would make an activist happy is, well, the answer is everyone must do everything they can. But yes, that is, of course, true of every challenge. And this is the most challenging challenge of all. But I do have to say, maybe it's just my Americanism or reluctance to embrace collective guilt or what I call solutions-oriented focus, though doesn't everyone say they have that? I don't know, weigh in if you don't. Maybe it's my simple interest in the fact that when we 
define a timeline of responsibility. We could change it to suit our narrative goals. But I'm just not certain that historic emitter is the best way to look at the pressing problem of the moment. Though I do concede it was shaped by decisions of the past and it implicates the future profoundly. On the show today, I spiel about the shaman and the princess. But first, Dr. Eugenia Chang is a mathematician, educator, author, public speaker, columnist, concert pianist, and artist. She joins to talk about her new book, The Joy of Abstraction, Exploration of Math, Category, Theory, and Life. It is the life part that will hook you. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I usually don't do this, starting with the CV of a guest, but I was just blown away by my guest, Eugenia Chang. Let's just start with the books. First, there was, in 2015, How to Bake Pie, an edible exploration of the mathematics of mathematics. Then there was Beyond Infinity, an expedition to the outer limits of mathematics. These books are coming once every other year about. Then The Art of Logic, How to Make Sense in a World That Doesn't. Then a couple years ago, X plus Y, a mathematician's manifesto for rethinking gender. Couple children's books in there. And now The Joy of Abstraction, an exploration of math, category, theory, and life. Now, I said the C. TV. Eugenia Chang writes for the Wall Street Journal. Pretty impressive credential that doesn't even make its way into the official credentials. She is the scientist capitalized in residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She holds a PhD in category theory from the University of Cambridge and one tenure in pure mathematics at the University of Sheffield. Wow. Also, did I mention concert-level pianist? Am I overpraising your uh, piano abilities? I heard you. It seems concert-level to me. Or is that about right, Eugenia? Thank you. Yeah, I, I do give concerts, yes. 
All right. I don't know if concert level is like masters in chess, but it does seem that you have all these uh, amazing strains going on through you and you're an interesting thinker. And so I want to start off with the idea of category theory. Are there other ways to understand this rather than the somewhat, I think, misleading phrase category theory? I like to call it the mathematics of mathematics. But to understand that, I have to explain why I have to help you understand what I think mathematics is in the first place, because too many people have been given the impression by school math that mathematics is just about numbers and equations. But really, mathematics, the way I do it and the way abstract mathematicians do it, is about understanding logically how things in the world around us work. And it's all about using logic to build clear arguments. And so category theory does that for mathematics, which sounds very looped up on itself. But what it's really doing is really getting to logical, the logical heart of logical structures. So what isn't mathematics? I mean, having read the book and uh, something of what you write, you have this expansive definition, but maybe it helps to be able to even falsify it. What isn't mathematics if, if math is all these things? There are definitely things we can't explain by logic. And I think that it's that's a really great question because it's important to know that I'm not trying to say math can explain everything because there are plenty of things that don't work by logic. I mean, when it comes down to it, I am i don't work by logic. I'm an emotional human being and my computer doesn't always work by logic. It does things that don't seem logical to me at all. But what I think is really valuable is to find the logical heart of it and understand that bit using logic. And then we can enjoy the other parts and explore the other parts that don't work according to logic, just like you can analyze a piece of music to understand why it moves us. And I love analyzing music to understand why it moves me. But beyond a certain point, there's something I can't explain. So I can analyze the structure. I can analyze the symmetry, the chord progressions. I can find which chords are really fantastic for me. But then I won't ever be able to explain quite why that chord makes me cry. And I just think it's wonderful that it does. And that's what I love about music. That's a little bit beyond what we can explain. But we do get closer and closer in music theory to understanding, I don't know if it, the exact question we're answering is why, but just that, that these combination of chords and this progression and this time signature seem to be very satisfying to human animals, other animals in nature. Is math moving along and progressing along those lines too? Yeah. And I think that for me, what's important is to try and understand as much as possible using logical structures, which never I'm never claiming that we'll be able to understand everything like that. But the more we can understand like that, I think the better. And I actually find the parts just beyond what we can explain are the most beautiful things. So I like putting all the things we can explain inside that logic. And then just beyond that is the, the kind of gold dust of what makes music and art and poetry beautiful to me. What's the thing you've been thinking about lately that, oh, you can almost grasp it, but it's just beyond? And maybe you'll be able to if you think about it for a few more years. Oh, gosh. Well, you know, there's something that there's something I've been really intrigued by for the last few years where I've been noticing situations where where pressure is put on people in different directions. And so, for example, uh, there's there's the move towards accepting same-sex marriage, for example, and the wonderful, joyful experience of same-sex couples being able to get married in some parts of the world for the first time. At the same time, I, as a straight woman, 
feel that for me, liberation is the the ability not to get married because over the course of history, that societal pressure has been on straight women that they have to get married in order to have validity in society. And so the liberating pressures are in opposite directions. So for me as a straight woman, it's important for me not to get married in order to feel liberated from that pressure. But I see that for same-sex couples, it's liberating to be able to get married. And those pressures in opposite directions, I think, can be... I haven't found a... a, I'm really looking for a good way of explaining that structure. And I I think that abstract mathematics has something to say about that. And that's something that I'm looking for. Well, I could uh, understand it in words and maybe articulate a principle that would apply to both something such as the definition of liberation is being able to choose the marital status that best suits you. Are you saying that, or do you suspect there might be a mathematical way to express that expression? I think there's something stronger than that, because it's not just about being able to do what you want to do. It's the fact that that we're being pushed, that we have been pushed in opposite directions, and that therefore to free ourselves, we have to move in opposite directions. Yeah. So can you think of, all right, I asked you to think of a a real world example that's just beyond your grasp. Can you articulate one that you have grasped or one that maybe you thought was or other mathematicians thought was beyond your grasp and you've been able to make a uh, diagram of or present in a rigorous, logical way? Well, one of the things I found really satisfying is an analysis of the kinds of arguments using analogies that often go wrong in society where someone says something like, oh, well, COVID's just the same as seasonal flu. There's no reason for us to get upset about it. And then people go, no, it's not, you idiot. And then that often degenerates into a useless argument where everyone's just yelling at each other. And so in that situation, I I think it's really important to acknowledge why some people think it is the same and why some people think it isn't, rather than just claiming there's a right answer. Because there is a sense in which COVID is like seasonal flu, because they're both respiratory viruses that that cause fatalities, sickness and fatalities. And the thing is that COVID is different in the sense that it's new, that there's a possibility of long COVID. It strikes people in ways that aren't entirely predictable at the moment. We don't know why some people get long COVID and some people don't, why some people get much more sick than others. The, the vaccines are new. There's no herd immunity. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that it is becoming less scary. Uh, the whole point about the scientific developments and the vaccines, and now we understand more about treatment, is that it is becoming more like something like seasonal flu than it was at the beginning. And so we shouldn't stay stuck in the position of saying it's completely unlike it. Yeah. And what's the math application to those words and concepts? Yeah. And so what I what I think is that there's a there's a level of abstraction or a level of generality where if you go up to a very high level of abstraction, then you get to say very many things are the same as each other. And so in the world, we often say that loads of things are the same as each other. So if we think about the number three, we're basically saying any collection of three objects, we've reduced to being the same thing. It's three. So that's infinitely many things we've declared are the same at that point. And we're perfectly happy with that. And it's not that they're not the same or they are the same. It's just that at that high level of abstraction, they're the same. And so there are lots of arguments where what's really going on is that people are using different levels of abstraction to say that things are either the same or they're not the same. 
And so in the other direction, we might say, oh, well, it's fine wearing wearing masks when there are some situations where you're required to wear a mask. It's like being required to wear a seatbelt. It's to protect yourself and other people. And then other people go, it's fascism. It's a complete loss of human liberty. And so they've gone up to a way higher level and they're equating it with not being allowed to do anything, that, anything, being told to do everything that you want. And that's a situation where they've gone to a higher level to declare that too many things are being made the same. Whereas in another situation, we're, well, maybe it's, it's also, it's the, same, it's the same idea that if you go to a higher level, you can consider many things to be the same, or you can go to a lower level of abstraction and be a little bit more nuanced about which things you're counting the same and not. Yeah. So in math terms, it is true that three equals two plus one, but there are some cases where that's not really true or useful. Yeah. And I love talking to my students about situations where one plus one can equal different things. And one of the views of math that is quite widespread is, oh, well, there just are right answers, aren't there? Like one plus one just does equal two. And I go, well, I mean, it depends because sometimes one plus one equals zero. For example, if I say I'm not not hungry, then that's the same as saying I'm hungry because two knots, one knot plus one knot equals zero knots. Or if you pour a pile of sand onto another pile of sand, you just get a bigger pile of sand. You have to talk us through all these concepts. So a way that one plus one doesn't equal two could be something like I have one cookie, then I have another cookie. So I must have two cookies unless I ate the first cookie. So that sounds maybe clever or you're trying to be a wise ass in class, but it is kind of actually useful, right? Right. And so it's the kind of thing that I love it when children come up with that. I think they're trying to push against the boundaries of the rules that have been imposed on them or being told what to do by adults. I mean, I remember being a child and I was basically frustrated the entire time by everything I was told to do. And so if you say to children, oh, well, when I gave you this example about cookies, you weren't supposed to eat them. That just sounds like you've taken all the fun out of the whole concept of cookies. And unfortunately, that's what math can feel like, I think, a lot of the time. And so there's two possible attitudes you can take to that. You can go, oh, well, that doesn't count as math. Or you can go, that's interesting. How can we express that in a different mathematical context? And the former kind is like an exclusionary form of math where you don't want to bring in interesting thinking. And the latter kind is a sort of inclusive kind of math where you say, well, we start with one form of math and then we think of something new and we go, okay, let's include this and make some more math. And that is how math research works. The reason that math keeps growing and there's more and more math to do all the time is because we want to include more and more ways of thinking. We don't want to just close ourselves off and have only one way of thinking. Now, is this, is this inclusive, exclusive, is this an echo of the concepts you laid out in your explanation? Y book? Yeah, I think it is. It's very much it's very much related to how I came to my ideas about general inclusivity in the world because my field of research, category theory, is all about evaluating or, or understanding things according to how they relate to other things, not sort of making judgment about their intrinsic characteristic. So we don't try to characterize the number two by describing just what the number two is. We just observe how it interacts with things. And so we put it in as many different contexts as possible to observe how it interacts with other things and then sort of proceed gently like that rather than going, well, two is this and that's the end of the story. Right, right. So two is the thing that has the effect on four if you divide it. And two is the thing that has the effect on seven if you add it. And it adds 
it adds up to a nine. And so in X plus Y, you're talking a little bit about gender. It's not as if male is this and female is this. It's how it interacts with everything else. So much of what you write about is about the context and the interaction that, and the observer, of course, also has an effect on the interaction. Right. And so what I was saying in X plus Y is, well, there's a longstanding theory that that gender is, it's about social pressure and about social constructs and about how we present ourselves. And so what I was saying in that book is that one way that we can be more inclusive is to think about what character types we value in the world and separate that out from the concept of gender in the first place so that we can kind of cut out one step in this slightly pointless dance that we're that society has been doing where we pressurize different genders to behave in different ways and then we also judge them for what they do and so i try to set out what i think that is valuable in character types in how we contribute to community and how we take into account other people around us and how we bring people together rather than trying to separate people out and that is to do with how just people relate to other people and it doesn't have to be attached to any particular genders Right. So you come up with uh, these new phrases, ingressive and congressive, meaning ingressive is more of the individualistic way of looking at the world and congressive is uh, working in harmony uh, and community. And they map on, or at least they, uh, the way we live our lives, or many of us in the West live our lives now, they map on roughly to many aspects of gender, but they needn't. Uh, my question is, when you were writing the book, I'm sure you were thinking about gender fluidity and you were thinking about the trans movement, but it was a little before that thinking really exploded. Were you um, critiqued or educated in ways post-publication that made you rethink anything in that book? No, I have been attacked by um, people who really are attached to the gender well, I binary. say critiqued, but in fact it was attacked. Yes, I've been attacked by people who are very, very invested in maintaining a gender binary and that is it's i i'm it's unfortunate what can i say it's unfortunate but what about the critique i would just imagining a critique of someone who was a neonatal female now expresses themselves as male and apologies if i'm getting the terms wrong but there might be a critique from that sort of person or people sympathetic to that person about the ingressive congressive way of looking at the world I have not been critiqued on that because everyone is welcome to present themselves in any way that they want. And one of the, my points about ingressive and congressive is it's absolutely not biological and that we can all learn to behave in different ways as we choose. And so I have been critiqued by some men, they're just men, who are so attached to their individualism and are so have been so successful or they've perceived themselves to be so successful in society by being aggressive that they really don't want to give up on it. And they feel that I am criticizing them for behaving in that way. And the truth is I sort of am criticizing them for behaving in that way because I don't think that, I don't value the sorts of people who insist on individualism, who insist on being competitive and trying to be better than other people. And so that's, if they're, if I'm getting pushback from those people, that's sort of justified because I am, in fact, criticizing them. 
Eugenia Chang is, as we've explained, many, many things, and she is most lately the author of The Joy of Abstraction, an Exploration of Math, Category Theory, and Life. Eugenia, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. New York Times headline, Norway Princess chooses shaman over royal role. I do not understand why the New York Times is covering cruise ships so in depth. So I turn to the New York Post. Norway's Princess Marta quits for alternative medicine lover. Well, who among us doesn't like a little ginseng or sprinkle of the St. John's wort? Still not understanding the hubbub. So I decided to read beyond the headline uh, and not the New York Post at all. And I found out that Marta Louise, daughter of King Harold and Queen Sonja of Norway, has relinquished her royal duties to marry a commoner, a very uncommon commoner, the American shaman Derek Verrett, who, as Princess Marta explained when she went on the Tamron Hall show last year, connected with her from the jump. I do spiritual work, so we did an energy healing together, Milana and me. And, um, and after the session, she was like, the only other time I've felt these kind of energies is Shaman Durek, you two have to meet. And so we came to his house uh, for lunch, and I walked in the door and I looked at him and I saw into his eyes and I was like, I know you already. And he's like, oh, we were meant to meet way before we were born. Shaman Derek went on to explain that he immediately, upon seeing the princess, saw an image of them together many years ago on a throne in Egypt. So, you know, given that picture, it really wasn't a crazy opening line. The two were engaged, which proved too much for the Norwegian royal family and the Norwegian public. Marta will no longer serve. Polls show that 47% think that her practices have a negative effect on the royal family. What are her practices? Well, her least common was speaking with the dead. The New York Times coverage of this story linked to a 118-page research paper titled Princess Og Aguilena, Princess of the Angels, named after a course she gave in her native Norway. Lots of data in that paper. Nothing, however, on the royal or not-quite-royal boyfriend, who offers for sale on his website a spirit optimizer, a magical charm, selling for $222. And Shaman Derek, by the way, that's how you address a shaman, title, then first name, which he changed from Derek, Derek. Shaman Derek does seem like a positive, life-affirming guy. Hello, beautiful, powerful Palus. I love you, and I'm so happy that you're back with us here in your shamanic training here at the Shaman School. So, one of the But the shamanic does tend to veer into the shambolic when Shaman Durek said that his amulet could ward off the coronavirus, and also how he maintains that he's part lizard or a descendant of reptiles, saurine in some capacity. Quote, I'm a hybrid species of reptilian and Andromeda. I also hold the energies of the ancient spirits from the old world. There have been lies told about our species that I want to address. We are a cluster of beings. That means we've come here to create structures that help people to come into liberation. Reptilians are here to shake up the system in a big way. You know, they're the new Reagan Democrats. On venereal disease, his teachings are, quote, when we have random sex, i.e. sex without an emotional connection, we attract subterranean beings, the sexual succubi. These beings are spirits that attach themselves to a person's energy field with their sucker-like limbs. Or, you know, chlamydia. 
So Princess Marta might no longer be presiding in herring packing factory openings in Lillehammer, but I'm going to guess that as a concept, the shaman and the princess might just be the next big Netflix elevator pitch, especially for those whose elevators don't go to all floors, which is to say we, the Americans, as skeptical as those fjord faced Norwegians are, we Americans love angels. We're crazy about cherubs, silly for seraphim. A Gallup poll conducted in 2016 showed that 72% of Americans say they believe in angels, which was down from 77% in 2011. Don't know what happened in between the Obama administration and 2016 to shake the belief that we're guided by benevolent forces. And also, like Meghan Merkel and Prince Harry, Marta and Shaman Durek is also a relationship between an African-American and a European. People will watch. Also, there's the possibility of the celebrity tie-in. American royalty, you know, famous people, love the shaman. His friends and followers include Chris Pine, Silicon Valley entrepreneur Dave Aspie of Bulletproof Coffee, the only kind of coffee the shaman drinks, Rosario Dawson, who herself dated a senator, and Gwyneth Paltrow, who considers him family. And so does Godzilla. Or at least they share some lineage. Okay, I made that one up about Godzilla, not about Gwyneth. Of course, Gwyneth and the Shaman are close. The New York Times did a profile of Shaman Dirk that was fairly glowing, or maybe that was just his aura. The trade-off was that the paper covered the practices of the Shaman as if they weren't absolutely batshit insane, but the Shaman put up with the negative energy of qualifier words, like when they said that Shaman Dirk, quote, purports to receive messages from spirits while working through the frequencies, energies, and even the colors supposedly emanating by a person's body with the goal of alleviating negativity or pain. The piece talks about the mainstreaming of shamanism. You could find the shaman playlist on Spotify, it says. And they go on to write about a shaman, a different shaman, who styles hair via, quote, a ritual combing practice combined with a sound bowl ritual under the principle that, quote, your hair has memory. The owner of that studio went on to say, shamans are like surgeons. They're all different kinds and everybody has their specialties. By the way, the same can be said of serial killers, but shamans are unlike surgeons, I'd like to point out, in that with shamans, there's no formal training, there's no certification, there's no actual validation of their supposed cures, and there's no proven ability to heal. Plus, surgeons wear white and shamans dress with more panache. Then there's this, no surgeon has inspired a Norwegian public broadcaster to run a cartoon featuring one of them as a magically appearing genie interceding as a woman is attacked at knife point. I know your real problem, says the cartoon version of Shaman Durek, as the woman says, I don't know, I don't speak Norwegian. But anyway, here's how the whole thing ends. Just chill out. I'm going to take a closer look at you. I'm inside your vagina right now. It's like dark energy in here. Coming back out. I just removed like evil spirits from your vagina. I'm going to charge you a thousand dollars. You're welcome. And so too, will Princess Marta be saying bye-bye to her royal duties her royal claim to the throne, but not her royal title. And she has given it all up for the love of a good man who is maybe part reptile. And that's it for today's show. 
Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, does not believe that she descends from an ancient lineage combining residents of the Horsehead Nebula and actual horses. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Shh. <laughs>